Joseph from the Old Testament was called by his brothers the dreamer. Joseph in the New Testament was given providential help by way of dreams. Martin Luther King had a dream which has profoundly impacted the country's social fabric. And now our Holy Father Francis tells us that he has a dream. And we're, we're gathered here this evening to find out what that dream is all about. And to ask ourselves whether under God's grace we are willing to appropriate that dream and make it our own and thus experience the joy of the gospel. Pope Francis calls his dream a missionary option. How does he phrase this option? He writes, I dream of a missionary option, that is a mission, an impulse capable of transforming everything so that the church's customs, ways of doing things, times and schedules, languages and structures can be suitably channeled for the evangelization of today's world rather than from the church's own self-preservation. He describes this option as an ecclesial renewal that cannot be deferred. He quotes John Paul II in support. All renewal in the church must have as its mission, if it is not to fall prey to a kind of ecclesial introversion, as mission. The church must be missionary. The apostolic exhortation under the title The Joy of the Gospel is the papal response to and creative summary of the work that took place at the 13th Ordinary General Assembly of the Synod of Bishops that gathered in Rome in October 2012 to discuss the new evangelization and the transmission of the Christian faith. You may recall that it was Pope Benedict who presided over the 2012 Synod of Bishops. It was Benedict who had proposed the topic evangelization for the transmission of the Christian faith. To prepare for the Synod, Pope Benedict inaugurated the Year of Faith. To guide us through that year, he issued his apostolic letter, The Door of Faith. It was Benedict who had already issued two excellent encyclicals, one on the virtue of charity and the second on the virtue of hope, and who began a third encyclical on faith, which he left to Pope Francis to complete and make his own. Its title, The Light of Faith. Did we ever think we would see the day when two popes one emeritus would issue together one encyclical. The two popes, of course, are very different in style and personality. But from my reading, they are quite similar in their thinking. How often Benedict spoke about evangelization, 
and how often he mentioned the joy of the gospel. I mention this at this time only to say that while I am most enthusiastic and hopeful about our new Pope Francis, and I applaud excitedly his call for reform, for simplicity, for poverty, I deplore what sometimes happens in the communication industry, which speaks so unfavorably, and I would suggest so unlearnedly, of Pope Benedict. How does Francis express his purpose in this exhortation? He tells us, in this exhortation, I wish to encourage the Christian faithful to embark on a new chapter of evangelization while pointing out new paths for the church's journey in the years to come. In paragraph three of the exhortation, the Pope makes an amazing and bold request. He writes, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, and at least, or at least an openness to letting him encounter them. No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or for her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought to us by the Lord. To support this profound and serious request, Francis adds, I never tire of repeating the words of Benedict XVI that take us to the heart of the gospel. Being a Christian, Benedict writes, is not the result of an ethical choice or a lofty idea, but an encounter with an event with a person which gives life to a new horizon and a decisive direction. This event, this person, obviously is the risen Christ, who came in human history to call the nations into the peace of the Father's kingdom, and who comes now in word and in sacrament so that he may encounter him as he encounters us. This request, which Francis directs to each one of us, is crucial. On it rests the rise or fall of the missionary option. If we, all of us, respond favorably, the Pope's missionary option will become reality. If not, the joy of the gospel as a document will be just filed away in the Vatican Museum. It would seem that Francis is saying to each one of us, if we give ourselves to the Lord, who gives himself to us, we will become mission-minded. We will become evangelizers. And then we will experience the joy that comes to us from the gospel. We cannot be joyful just because someone tells us, even the Pope, to be joyful. Joy is always the echo of God's life within us. This document which we are studying during Lent did not fall whole and entire from the heavens in some mysterious fashion, 
Evangelization is the work of Jesus, the great evangelizer. And he is at work within us, reviving in our days the mystery of the church through which the risen Christ continues down the centuries the work he first began in human history. Only Jesus is the evangelizer who needs no evangelization. The church, all of us, called to the work of evangelizing, must ourselves be greatly evangelized. This suggests a great problem in our church today and here in the parish of St. John. Many have fallen away from the practice of the faith. So many of our young people receive confirmation and then are no longer participants in the faith. Many have become baptized unbelievers in the world of this time. There are many reasons for this state of affairs which we cannot handle at this time, but what I can say is that these baptized unbelievers of ours have had attention in the religious programs of the parish, have attended Catholic schools and colleges. The problem, as I see it, is this. They may have been catechized, but not truly evangelized. Catechesis without evangelization cannot suffice. Let's talk about evangelization for a moment. Chapter 1 of our document is called The Church's Missionary Transformation. Paragraph 19 reminds us that evangelization takes place in obedience to the mandate of Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is from Matthew's Gospel. And each of the other Gospels has the same missionary command. Although most of us were brought up in the church to cherish as most important the missions of the church in fields afar, the foreign missions as we call them, it is not easy to get a good grasp on the nature of evangelization, a new word for most of us. It won't be particularly helpful this evening to offer some abstract definition. The best way to know what evangelization is is to pick up one of the Gospels and watch carefully what Jesus does and sometimes what he says. Pick up the book we call the Acts of the Apostles and see what the Peter and James and John are doing and saying. That's evangelization. Think of someone like Francis Xavier who left his native Paris and his education at the University of Paris, and followed Ignatius into the Jesuits, and spent his life preaching and teaching Jesus in the Far East, that's evangelization. Or think of Therese of Lisieux, who never left her Carmelite convent, and died at the age of 24, who dreamed of being a preacher like St. Paul, a teacher like Thomas Aquinas, a scripture scholar like St. Jerome. She even dreamt of learning Greek and Hebrew so she could read the New Testament in its original languages. But these were just dreams. As she offered her prayers and works and sufferings to God for the work of the missions, 
And that is why we reverence her now as the co-patron with Xavier in heaven of all Catholic missionary work. That's evangelization. What about ourselves? On the day of our baptism, the celebrant said to us, Harriet, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has freed you from sin, has given you a new birth by water and the Holy Spirit, and has welcomed you into his holy people, now anoints you with the chrism of salvation. As Christ was anointed priest, prophet, and king, so may you live now as a member of his body, sharing everlasting life. We share by the sacraments of Christian initiation in the threefold office of Jesus, who is priest, prophet, and king. When we pray, when we celebrate Sunday Eucharist, when we live the sacrificial demands of the gospel, we share in the life of Christ the priest, and that's evangelization. When we teach our children the catechism, when we continuously inform ourselves about the adult consequences of our faith, when we represent and speak up for our faith in the public square, we advance the work of Christ the teacher, Christ the prophet, and that's evangelization. But what does it mean to advance the work of Christ the King? We continue the work of Christ the King when we bring the teachings of the gospel to society and culture, to family life, to the arts and technology, to education and economics, to labor and management, to medicine and politics. This primarily is the work of the lay members of the church, which is to order the temporal things of the world in the light of the gospel, and that is evangelization. Pope Francis envisions three principal settings for the work of evangelization. He writes, in the first place we can mention the area of ordinary pastoral ministry, which is animated by the fire of the Holy Spirit, so as to inflame the hearts of the faithful who regularly take part in community worship and gather on the Lord's day to be nourished by his word and by the bread of eternal life. In this category, we can also include, he says, those members of the faithful who have preserved indeed a sincere faith, expressing it in different ways, but seldom taking part in community worship. Ordinary pastoral ministry seeks to help such believers to grow spiritually so that they can respond to God's love evermore fully in their lives. A second area is that of the baptized, whose lives do not reflect the demands of, the, of baptism, who lack a meaningful relationship to the church and no longer experience the consolations born of faith. The church in her maternal concern tries to help them experience a conversion which will restore the joy of faith in their hearts and inspire commitment to the gospel. 
And thirdly, the Pope reminds us, quote, we cannot forget that evangelization is first and foremost about preaching the gospel to those who do not know Jesus Christ or have always thus far rejected him. All of them have a right to receive the gospel. Just for a little break, that's my introduction. Now, whether you want to include introduction in the time of my speech, that's up to you folks. I just don't want to have the reputation of going too long. I heard a story the other day. A political a politician was asked one day, why does your opponent go and speak so long? And the politician said, that's not easy. That's not difficult to answer. The point is, my opponent doesn't know what he's talking about. And for that reason, he never knows when he's finished talking about it. I don't want to be in that category. So we'll include the, the introduction in my timing. So much for the introduction. My charge this evening is the Pope's first chapter. It's entitled, The Church's Missionary Transformation. Transformation is the big word. It involves us all and will take decades for us to begin to appreciate its implementation, whether we are parishioners, pastors, bishops, or popes. The first chapter covers four particular themes, church and mission, conversion and mission, communication and mission, and finally, mission within the limitations of language. Let me see if I can talk about those sections within the limitations of language and time. First, the church and mission. Evangelization takes place in obedience, as we've seen, to the missionary command of the risen Christ to his bewildered disciples on the day of the Lord's glorious return to his heavenly Father. The church, of course, has no choice. The church must obey, and the church has obeyed, as we can see in the missionary efforts of so many religious congregations at work in fields afar. From our earliest days, we began to realize our role of prayer and financial assistance that we were asked to offer as help to the generous men and women who labored so well and so, sex so successfully even at times, unto martyrdom. However, times have changed. The present situation is so radically different. Missionary efforts are still essential in far-off lands, now brought so incredibly close by modern technology. But now we know that God is dead for the majority of folks living in our own backyards. God loves them and wills only what is for their happiness, now and beyond the grave. And somebody's got to tell them that. We begin to see the dimensions of evangelization beyond praying and paying, and we begin to see what the Lord expects of all of us, especially in our parishes, which must become centers of evangelization. What is Pope Francis envisioning and what is, it, what is he expecting of you and me? 
In our day, Jesus' command to go and make disciples echoes in the changing scenarios and ever new challenges to the church's work of evangelization. And all of us, in countless diverse ways, are caught up in this new missionary going forth. The Pope's document of 84 pages of exhortation is not a document like a job description which every parish must strive to compose. Each parish, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, must strive to become a parish of other Christ following in the steps of Jesus, the evangelizer. Each parish must be seen as on the move, going forth like Moses of old, to whom God said, Go, I send you. Or like Jeremiah the prophet, To whomever I send you, you shall go. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Have no fear before them. I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Each Christian in every community must discern the path that the Lord will point out. But all of us are asked to obey in hundreds of different ways the call to evangelize and thus the call to go forth. As Francis tells us, from our comfort zones, in order to reach all those living in periphery situations so needy of the light of the gospel. The Pope writes, as ev- at every evangelizing, as every evangelizing community gets involved by word and deed in people's daily lives, it bridges distances and embraces human lives and suffering. It is always supportive, standing by the people in need and in difficulty. The parish, as we will see in the next section, is key as it is the parish that holds itself responsible for all peoples within its borders, a parish of other Christ known for their kindness, love, and mercy towards all they encounter. Second, conversion and mission. The section on church and mission has helped us, I trust, see the challenges Pope Francis is giving us in his exhortation. Now we must ask, what ought the church to be like in terms of the new evangelization? Our second section, conversion and mission, outlines what the new evangelization will cost us in terms of conversion, both communal and personal. The Pope writes, I am aware that nowadays documents do not arouse the same interest as they did in the past, and they are quickly forgotten. Nevertheless, I want to emphasize that what I am trying to express here has a programmatic significance and important consequences. I hope that all communities will devote the necessary effort to advance along the path of pastoral and missionary conversion, which cannot leave things as they presently are. Mere administration can no longer be sufficient. Throughout the world, let us be permanently in a state of mission. The Pope makes reference to Pope Paul's pastoral encyclical on evangelization, 
shortly after the uh, council. And he makes the distinction between the ideal image of the church, which only the Lord can envisage, and the actual image which the church presents, not particularly favorable and helpful today to the world at this time. This distinction is the source of the church's impatient struggle for renewal, for conversion, to correct the flaws and sins which are now so counterproductive for the preaching of the word of God. Thus, this exhortation reminds us that the Second Vatican Council presented ecclesial conversion as openness to a constant self-renewal of fidelity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ summons the church as she goes her pilgrim way so that continual reformation of what she is always in need is going to be with us until the end of time. Who should respond to the call for conversion? The parish, other pastoral institutions, such as basic ecclesial communities, the new movements in the church, such as Opus Dei, Communio et Liberazione, and the Neo-Catechumenate, the Presbyterates of the world, the Episcopacy, and the Papacy. In other words, all the above. There's not much you and I can do about reforming the papacy, although Pope Francis seems to be off to a hopeful start. You and I can't do very much practically about regarding the conversion of the bishops or the new lay communities. For our purposes this evening, we should focus on the parish. Paragraph 28 in chapter 1 is key. The parish is not an outdated institution because it possesses great flexibility and it can assume quite different contours depending on the openness and the missionary creativity of the pastor and the community. While certainly not only the institution which evangelizes, if the parish proves capable of self-renewal and constant adaptivity, it continues to be the church living in the midst of the homes of her sons and daughters. This presumes that, in, that it really is in contact with the homes and the lives of its people and does not become a useless structure out of touch with people or a self-absorbed group made up of a chosen few. The parish is the presence of the church in a given territory an environment for hearing God's word, for growth in the Christian life, for dialogue, proclamation, charitable outreach, worship, and celebration. With regard to conversion, pastoral ministry today must be missionary ministry, which seeks to overcome the complacent attitude that says, we have always done it this way. And so the Holy Father invites everyone to be bold and creative in this task of rethinking the goals, structures, styles, and methods of evangelization in their own respective communities. Early in the 19th century, it was, actually it was um, Pope Pius XI who sought to enlist us all under the banner of Christ the King. Even at that time, it was obvious to Pope Pius 
that the culture of the West was being threatened by secularization and could only be encountered by what was then called Catholic action. That is, all of us seeking to live the gospel under the banner of Christ our King. Its motto was seek, judge, and act. And this is what our Holy Father is asking of us today. We must fearlessly seek to study what the missionary task in our parish is for us here and now, and how we are to carry it out in our everyday lives. This is nothing other than what the Second Vatican Council urged on all of us in the Church in its document on the Church in the world of this time, in which the bishops of the world said to us, this council exhorts Christians as citizens of two cities to strive to discharge their earthly duties conscientiously and in response to the gospel. They are mistaken, who knowing that we have here no abiding city, but seek one that is to come, think that they may therefore shirk their earthly responsibilities. For they are forgetting that by the faith itself they are more obliged than ever to measure up to these duties, each according to his or her proper vocation. Nor, on the contrary, are they any less wide of the mark who think that religion consists in acts of worship alone or in the discharge of certain moral obligations and who imagine that they can plunge themselves into earthly affairs in such a way as to imply that these are altogether divorced from the religious life. This split between faith and what that many profess and their daily lives deserves to be counted among the most serious errors of our time. The third section. Sounds like the third station. We only have 14 stations, so hold on. Putting all things in a missionary key affects the way we communicate our Catholic faith. In today's world of instant communication and occasionally biased media coverage, the message we preach runs the greater risk of being distorted or being reduced to some secondary aspects. In this way, certain issues, which are part of the Church's teaching, especially in the moral area, are taken out of context, a context which gives them their meaning. The biggest problem is when the message we preach in evangelization then seems to be identified with the secondary aspects, which, important though they are, do not, of themselves, convey the heart of Christ's gospel. We need to be realistic, the Pope tells us, and not assume that our potential audience understands the full background of what we are saying or is capable of relating what we say to the very heart of the gospel, which gives us meaning and beauty and attractiveness. This section of the exhortation requires careful reading, I would suggest. In my presentation, I have entitled this section Communication and Mission. Actually, the Pope has entitled it From the Heart of the Gospel. We find two expressions in this section of chapter one, 
The text speaks of what comes from the heart of the gospel and speaks also of what is of secondary rank. The Pope does not want these two expressions to be identified when it comes to evangelization. Words like secondary do not mean unimportant or insignificant. There are many issues which are enormously important in moral teaching, such as abortion, marital issues, sexual concerns. However, they are not necessarily part and parcel of missionary evangelization. Missionary proclamation means telling the world about God, who loves the world and sent his divine Son among us, so that we might all become sons and daughters of such a wonderful Father whose life we share to the cross of Jesus. Missionary proclamation tells the world about Jesus, who came among us to show us the way to the Father. Jesus teaches us that God wills only what is for our happiness, and how God the Father calls us and all people to be numbered among his own. As we seek to explore this section of the document, it might be good to raise the question, how does the church communicate its faith in the public square? The answer, briefly, is the church does so in three distinct but important ways. Evangelization, catechesis, and theology. Each has a particular form of language, and the language of evangelization is proclamation, which comes from the heart of the gospel. It's not possible to teach the catechism to someone who has not been evangelized, and it's not possible for a person to be engaged in the work of theology who has not been properly catechized. Furthermore, it is not possible to engage in the work of evangelization if one has not been properly evangelized. This is why in paragraph 3 at the beginning of this exhortation, as I have already alluded to it, Francis has made this request of every Christian. I invite all Christians everywhere to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ. All the revealed truths of our faith derive from the same source and are to believe, be to be believed with the same faith. Yet some of them are more important for giving direct expression to the heart of the gospel, so that what shows forth is the saving will of God made present in our Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose for the glory of the Father and the true happiness of all people. The Second Vatican Council, in its decree on ecumenism, underscored the teaching that there is an order in, of truths, of the hierarchy of truths in the gospel message, since truths vary in their rel relative relationship to the foundations of the faith. We read in the Council's decree, when comparing document, doctrines with one another, we should remember that in Catholic teaching, there exists an order or a hierarchy of truths, since they vary in their relationship to the foundation of the Christian faith. The Holy Father turns to Thomas Aquinas, who long before the Second Vatican Council taught that the Church's moral teachings has its own hierarchy. 
per this means of course for example in terms of the of the virtues and the actions which proceed from the virtues what counts above all in the moral life is faith working through love as paul says to the galatians works of love directed to our one's neighbor are the most perfect external manifestations of the interior grace of the holy spirit the foundation of the new law is the grace of the holy spirit who is manifested in the faith that works through love saint thomas tells us that the greatest of all the virtues is mercy since all the others revolve around it does not saint paul in the ephesians tell us that we must be imitators of god and it's most proper for god to have mercy most proper for us to imitate him in his mercy all this is good wisdom for those who preach or teach the catholic faith such preaching and teaching must manifest a sense of proportion which can be seen in the frequency with which certain themes are brought about and brought up and given emphasis the pope gives an excellent example he writes if in the course of a liturgical year the parish priest speaks about temperance twelve times and only mentions mercy and justice twice then an imbalance results the same thing happens when we speak more about law than about grace more about the church than about christ more about the pope than god's word the other day in the new york times the columnist david brooks wrote there's a strong vein of hostility against orthodox religious believers in america today especially among the young when secular and mostly secular people are asked by researchers to give the, their impressions of those who seem to be devoutly faithful whether jewish christian or other the words come up such as judgmental hypocritical old-fashioned and out of touch in his interesting article brook quotes rabbi heschel who was concerned about the way believers express their faith and he seems to emphasize the notion that sometimes when they are referring to faith they they completely replace it with just the creed or when they're talking about worship they talk, talk about the discipline of worship and when the culture of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past and when the faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain and when religion speaks only in the nuance of authority rather than with the voice of compassion that's a difficult section needs to be read very carefully one more section and i think we'll be finished in time the fourth section is is a mission embodied within human limits namely a mission and the human limits of language the church by its very nature is a missionary disciple this was made luminously luminously clear in the vatican doctrine on the mission france entitles this fourth section in chapter one a mission embodied within human limits in keeping with the terminology i have been using 
I'm just suggesting that we talk about it as mission and the human limits of language. Like all disciplines, whatever the area of concern, it takes time for the church to mature in its missionary challenge. In order to mature in its challenge, the church stands in need, in need for the work of scripture scholars and the work of theology, the work of sociology and the various social sciences and the expertise and talents of so many of our lay folk. It's helpful to note that the church cannot control the evolution of language. Take, for example, the word propaganda. For centuries, it referred to the universal and Catholic outreach of the good news of the gospel to peoples all over the world. And now think what we mean by the word propaganda. As Pope John XXIII remarked at the opening of the Second Vatican Council, the deposit of the faith is one thing, the way the deposit of the faith is expressed at any given time is another thing. Francis observed, for those who long for a monolithic body of doctrine guarded by all and leaving no room for nuance, this might appear as undesirable and leading to confusion. But the variety of languages can serve to bring out the different facets of the inexhaustible riches of the gospel. We ought to say to every particular preacher whatever what every mother has to say to her to her son. Watch your language. When I was a seminarian, a missionary bishop spoke to us about preaching. He told us, and I wondered at the time if this was something of an exaggeration, that 20% of the people listening to a homily go away with precisely the opposite view of what the preacher intended. Such are the limits of language. But the limits that mission encounters go beyond the limits of language. Certain customs of the past may not speak today to peoples of our time. And the Holy Father quotes St. Thomas and St. Augustine to the effect that preachers and teachers are not to harden and burden the lives of the faithful who often face limits in terms of ignorance, fear, inordinate attachments, and other psychological and social uh, attachment. Thus, evangelization is no easy task. Faith always remains something of a cross. Francis tells us that we will never be able to make the church's teachings always easily understood or appreciated by everyone. And furthermore, the people of our day listen oh, and will accept not just teachers, but teachers who are also witnesses to what they teach. This last section has some wonderful and practical suggestions, but I'd like to end by quoting the last paragraph of chapter one. It gives us an idea of what, how Francis looks to the church and what he thinks the church ought to be. The paragraph goes as follows. Here I repeat for the entire church what I have often said to the priests and laity of Buenos Aires. I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it has been out on the streets rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. I do not want a church 
concerned with being at the center and which then ends by being caught up in a web of obsessions and procedure. If something should rightly disturb us and trouble our consciences, it is the fact that so many of our brothers and sisters are living without the strength, light, and consolation born of friendship with Jesus Christ, without a community of faith to support them, without meaning, and without a goal in life. More than by fear of going astray, my hope is that we'll be moved by the fear of remaining shut up within structures which gives a false sense of security, within rules which make us harsh judges, within habits which makes us feel safe, while at our door people are starving and Jesus does not tire of saying to us, give them something to eat.